Does business shrink the heart or does it help it expand? I mean, does it nourish the spirit? Can it nourish the spirit? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them and a book that has shaped them in some ways. Now, Martin Reeves is the author of The Imagination Machine, and he didn't have a particularly auspicious start to his career. So I, I guess I'm um, primarily uh, a failed musician and uh, a failed uh, botanist, and um, I've stuck to uh, strategy, uh, strategy consulting for 30 years, and I now run something called the Henderson Institute, which is a BCG's think tank for new approaches and ideas in business. BCG, it stands for the Boston Consulting Group, is a top-notch strategic firm like McKinsey or Bain. Now, I think of those firms, you know, probably a little unfairly, as being all about number crunching and optimization and bloodless decision-making. So how does one go from music to botany to business strategy? Well, here's a clue. I met Martin first at the House of Beautiful Business. That's my favorite conference at the moment. And that tension you probably noticed between beautiful and business, well, that exists in Martin as well. He is brilliant at strategy. He loves business. And at the same time, he can see its limitations and how little it has fulfilled its human potential. If you look at the words used in business, you'll find that roughly half of the language is never used in business. And um, I think that's indicative that we're not applying our full human potential to business. Business is a little, little desiccated, a little antiseptic, a little bit overly logical. And um, uh, so that was interesting because the house of business is all about the intersection of the humanities and business. But if you want an example of that, just look at how we communicate in PowerPoint. Every abbreviation or innovation in communication brings new problems, right? And PowerPoint was originally uh, a sort of an information compression, a way of communicating concisely, but then, of course, we just increased the number of slides. So you're back to the same problem. And with an additional new problem, which is in, uh, in the design system of PowerPoint, communication becomes quite uniform, quite desiccated. Uh, so I was quite interested in the, um, well, the choice of the word beauty, the house of beautiful business. I think communication can be beautiful. What does beauty mean? You know, beauty means appealing to the mind or to the senses. And we can communicate in ways that appeal to the mind or the senses. And that, that attracted my attention too. Most of the PowerPoint I've sat through has appealed more to my need for a nap than for any sense of beauty. Now, Martin's used the word desiccated twice already. So what causes this drying up, this bureaucratization, this ossification? Well, I, I think um, generally in life, success uh, often undermines itself by breeding complacency, uh, by um, precipitating some sort of lock-in effect to the previously or currently successful model. So I think as businesses, if you think about sort of the life cycle of a business, um, it starts with a hungry entrepreneur with a very tentative idea. And we don't, we don't remember the ones that failed, but 95% of them fail. And then the few that survive, they scale, they grow, they specialize, they refine. So they exploit a model of success. And, uh, and at the same time, if they're successful, they become big, they become complicated, they become more financially oriented. But those very elements which uh, monetize the success 
can undermine the possibility of future success because they're the opposite of exploration, uh, curiosity, risk-taking, nimbleness, breadth of thinking, and so on. Um, yeah. So in, in, in business strategy, we call that strategic ambidexterity, the ability to explore and exploit at the same time. That's a very important concept. Right. Yeah, that points to Christensen's idea of the innovator's dilemma as well, which, you know, at a certain point, you just lose that ability to move to the next S-curve and try to figure it out. So that's a difficult leap to pull off. Uh, and, well, that's the, that's the economic part of it. And then we have this other dimension that we just touched on with the House of Beautiful Business, which is making sure that we're using the full uh, human potential, our full human potential yeah. uh, in business rather than uh, just the... Um, efficient economic actions. Um, yeah. So make sure that we don't become homo economicus, that we, we maintain our identity and our full potential in a business context. I feel like this is a great segue to ask you about the book you've chosen to read for us. W what have you picked? So I picked a, a book by um, one of my favorite writers, um, John Kay. Um, he wrote a book with um, Mervyn King. So they're both uh, economists. So Mervyn is the a uh, former bank of uh, the governor of the Bank of England, and they wrote a book yeah. called um, Radical Uncertainty, Decision-Making Beyond the Numbers. And um, I, I picked it because um, it deals with something that I'm uh, thinking about uh, today, and I can explain that. Um, um, uh, and um, also, I think uh, John is a very good writer. He writes with humor. He writes with breadth. You know, he brings in history and philosophy so it's an interesting read as well as being some sort of weighty and interesting insights. I'm really looking forward to hearing this. I don't know this book, but I have read his book, Obliquity, and he's a great writer and a rich writer in terms of he draws on different sources, but he's funny and he's provocative as well. I haven't read many books by economists, but when I think of what books economists would write, they're not short and crafted and eloquent and elegant and provocative. How did you come to pick the two pages that you chose, Martin? Um, well, uh, I had John on, on my podcast. Um, we're all podcasters nowadays and broadcasters. And, uh, exactly. uh, and, and so I, I, my podcast discusses important new business books and ideas. And um, so we honed in on uh, an idea of the power of narrative. You know, what is the power of narrative as opposed to the power of a quantitative model? Um, yeah. So that's where the, the conversation led. And uh, that ties in with something that I've been thinking about. I, I've just completed a book that's coming out in a few weeks' time called The Imagination Machine, right. which is about how corporations can uh, harness the uniquely uh, human capacity to uh, imagine things which are not the case and cause them to become the case. Yeah, you know, I want to talk more about that new book of yours because just the title itself is such a brilliant, intriguing play of words. It's a factory, but it's a machine and it's imagination. How do they even stand together? So we're going to get into that, I'm sure. But for now, read us these two pages. I'm really intrigued to hear what they say. So I'm going to read um, chapter 12, part of chapter 12, um, which is about good narratives and bad narratives. In chapter nine, we described how extended social kinship groups developed in Paleolithic times. From the very beginnings of cooperative human action, hunter-gatherers formed groups to provide self-protection and to exploit the division of labor. And as humans began to communicate, they clustered around campfires to tell stories. We see the beginnings of narratives 20,000 years ago in cave paintings, such as those at Lascaux. 
upper Paleolithic tribes would elaborate epics of heroism and invent fantastic mythologies to explain natural forces they did not understand. The anthropologist Polly Wiesner has compiled meticulous records of the conversations of the Kung Bushmen, the modern communities whose practices are, are believed to most resemble those of Paleolithic societies. During the daytime, one third of communication relates to economic matters and a similar amount of time to bickering. The modern office is much the same. But after dinner and dark, the harsher mood of the day mellows. The focus of conversation changed radically as economic concerns and social gripes were put aside. At this time, 81% of lengthy conversations involving many people were devoted to stories. These stories were largely about known people in amusing, exciting, or endearing escapades. Storytelling is how humans normally try to interpret complex situations. And such storytelling is universal. The Bushmen gather around the fire, and Manhattanites and Londoners fight for tickets to the musical Hamilton. Humans are natural storytellers, and humans use these stories in reaching decisions by using analogies, in testing arguments, and understanding of both processes and facts, and to elicit the cooperation of others in arriving at and implementing good decisions. Narratives aid both understanding and persuasion. And most people are more comfortable with the concrete than the abstract. As young teachers or more seasoned speakers, it did not take us long to learn that we could grip an audience with a good story and lose the room with a few statistics or a single equation. What makes a good narrative? The quality of presentation makes the most immediate impression upon us. Among the Bushmen, both men and women told stories, particularly older people who had mastered the art. Camp leaders were frequently good storytellers, but not exclusively so. Two of the best storytellers in the 1970s were blind, but cherished for their humor and their verbal skills. Those who listened were entertained while collecting the experiences of others with no direct cost. And in the West, it is the brilliance of execution and performance that attracts us to the novels of Jane Austen and leads us to admire the Royal Shakespeare Company and the performers in Hamilton. Narrative is not simply a synonym for verbal communication, nor is verbal communication less scientific than algebraic or other symbolic communication. To cope with radical uncertainty, we try to form a coherent and credible answer to the question, what is going on here? This effective use of narrative is in sharp contrast to the idea that narratives are a recourse of the ill-informed and biased agents who prefer storytelling to computation. That's really interesting, Martin. And I'm so glad that you got in some of that John Kay humor for us as well, because he has that very dry British sense of humor. This is really interesting. I mean, I strive to be a better storyteller. It's one of the things that I'm like, okay, I'm good at this at times, but really, you know, a great storyteller does, does move a room. It also helps us tackle the question, what's really going on? So what struck a chord for you in this? What's felt so powerful? Um, well, if I link this to um, the broader set of ideas in the book, you know, some of the key ideas mm. are that um, we may think that uh, quantitative models and statistics are impressive and accurate and scientific, but actually they have some severe limitations. They can only use in what, what John calls small worlds that, are, that permit a level of prediction. But we live in a, what he calls a large world, a complex world yeah. where the situation is not stationary and where 
um, there is this property of reflexivity, namely my beliefs about a situation influence the reality of the situation. So that creates an unforecastable situation. For instance, yeah. stock market prices partially depend on what I believe about stock market prices, which inform what I believe about stock market prices. So you get this circularity, this unpredictability. So he says, how do we make sense of these more complex realities? Um, well, this is age old um, technique of storytelling, um, mm. which is essentially concerned with the question of, um, uh, of, of what is going on here, which is basically the question I face every day in, 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 in strategy consulting. Right. Um, he, he claims that it's not inferior to numerical analysis. In fact, in some ways, it's, it's superior because it can handle greater complexity. Um, he yeah. admits that it is um, capable of uh, you know, superficiality or a, a abuse or appeal to emotion, but he says that, that it has its own discipline. And he describes that as ecological rationality. In other words, the stories that are subject to challenge and survive challenge and are tr transmitted and last, uh, you know, have, have wisdom in them. That's interesting. Now, the, the central idea that fascinates me is the idea that we can all do this, of course. You know, we, we all understand, we can all immediately relate to what he says about the, the narratives and the stories around the campfire. But yeah. we cannot necessarily explain our art. And so there's something about the, the magic of codification here. By giving it a name and understanding yeah. how it works, we can then deploy this incredible capability uh, more, more deliberately and more powerfully. Now, I'm projecting a lot here, I'm sure, but what I make up about BCG, as I do with you know all the big consulting firms, is that they're more about the rational-based, numbers-based, show me the quant proof of making stuff happen. Not least because I suspect that the clients you work with, the CEOs of big and small companies, ask for that. They demand that as well. So there's a shared collusion that we all feel safe if we've got the numbers and we've got the models and we've got the structures. I'm curious to know how you try and bring storytelling into those types of business conversations. Yeah, I think it's actually an essential part of what we do. So I, 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 I think it, I think good consulting requires an ambit dexterity of thought. So mm. um, obviously there are quantitative and financial aspects of business. There has to be a, a favorable outcome. Um, but yeah. on the other hand, um, there's actually a quote at the beginning of the of each chapter and a well-chosen quote. So the quote for this chapter that I just read is um, from Dan Kahneman saying that nobody ever made a decision because of a number. They need a story. Um, and, and that is true in consulting, which is um, to, to focus minds and to move minds and to create alignment and excitement and motivation. You need more than numbers. And that is where the, uh, you know, the narrative comes in. And you also need the transmission of ideas. Um, you need not just the leader or the champion of the idea to believe the idea. You need others to believe the idea. So there's the right. appeal of the idea and the framing of the idea. So a lot of the, the art of um, consulting or persuasion or problem solving in everyday life, I think, is to do with, uh, with narrative technique. How has this book and these insights influenced your new book, The Imagination Machine? Um, it, it would have been a great thing had I read John's book before I wrote <laughs> mine, um, because they, they cover some, <laughs> right. uh, some similar ground. But it was more uh, written in parallel, and um, I'd, I'd say my, my confidence in some of the ideas that I, that I wrote about was, was, was reinforced. Um, so the, my, my book on imagination is about how 
about a different problem. It's about the problem of um, the, this incredible capacity of corporations to shape the world by imagining yeah. a possibility and then realizing that possibility. That actually involves marrying the mechanical and the instrumental and the financial uh, with the creative and the and, and the inspirational uh, side, side of business. Um, yeah. So the w- w- what I'm interested in basically is um, a bit like storytelling. You know, uh, we all have imagination. It's a it's something that distinguishes us from other animals and from machine learning. Um, but we can't necessarily describe what it is, and we don't necessarily have systematic ways of harnessing in business. So the the title, the imagination machine, is basically about the it sounds paradoxical that you can have a machine that imagines, but it's about right. the corporation yeah. as a deliberate exercise in harnessing uh, a rather quirky human potential called called the imagination. And um, some of the uh, some of the key ideas in the book are um, which which uh, linked to, to John's book are um, the limits of modeling. I talk about the limits of artificial intelligence. So artificial intelligence. Right is good at what uh, the mathematician Judea Pearl calls correlative thinking. If this happens, what else happens? But it's not yeah. very good at causal thinking, and it cannot do counterfactual thinking. It cannot analyze the patterns in data that doesn't exist because you're imagining something that, did, that didn't happen yet. So that's one, right. one aspect. Right. Um, a second one is, um, John says in his book um, that the... Um, the complex, unpredictable nature of the world is the very reason why entrepreneurialism is possible. Mm-hmm. And if everything followed a preset formula, if everything was a financial equation, there would be no Steve Jobs. And it would all be figured out by now. Right, exactly. So I would, and that's very important, um, because one very important uh, instantiation of that paradox in business is that almost every company was founded on an active imagination by a hungry entrepreneur. Yeah. But in pursuing success and scale, often... That that mojo, that innovative mojo, is is often lost, and it becomes an exercise in in optimization. So the link to entrepreneurialism. Yeah. Um, a third important connection is, um, uh, you know, John points out that when an economist says that something is departs from rationality, what they really mean is that the real world is more complex than their model. You know, the, <laughs> <laughs> reality doesn't follow the axioms of the model. Oh, that is fantastic! I love that. And, and I, I, I say something uh, um, related in, in my book, which is that mental models are not fact. In or, not yeah. facts. In order to um, see the possibility of changing the world, we first need to think about the world in a different way, which means that we need to adopt different mental models. And the first step to doing that is actually to realize that my mental model of a business is precisely that. It's a mental model, not a fact. So when I talk about market share, I'm not talking about a fact. I'm talking about a way of looking at the boundaries of the business, which could be otherwise. And just one more, um, uh, you know, what is a good, what is a good narrative? Um, In, 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 in John's book, the, um, a good narrative is, is one that has the properties of coherence and, and, and uh, surviving challenge, you know, it it invites challenge. And in the same way, a good and imaginative company is one that is perpetually self-disrupting yesterday's model for success. So right. surviving challenge, ecological rationality um, is, is, is a very important part of this. There's a lot here, Martin. I think what I want to ask you is this. 
Knowing that there's a broad tendency to move from this initial sense of being imaginative and hungry and disruptive, you know, a new way of seeing the world, to as you become more established, becoming more codifiable and more predictable and more efficient. I mean, how do you help curiosity and imagination stay alive in a machine where actually kind of efficiency is its raison d'etre? I mean, you know, organizations like things being predictable and they like them being the same. This is a homeostasis. And it feels like there's a constant pressure to actually eliminate imagination and curiosity. So what have you seen as the best ways to try and keep this alive? Right. Well, it comes back to that first question you asked me about, you know, what is strategy? Anything which gets the job done. And the job would not have been done very well had we created temporary success that was not replicable. Right. Uh, that, that would be a very limited form of success. Uh, ideally, we want, um, you know, the, uh, the performance of the company to, uh, to create an encore and um, to, to, right. to create the ability of, of, of self-renewal, not just homeostasis, but self-renewal or replication. Yeah. And um, in order to do that, I think you have to balance opposing forces. So one force is, one legitimate force is to um, exploit the, um, the, the success, the potential of, um, of, of the entrepreneur's thought. Um, but, a, but a counterbalancing tendency is to question the basis for that success and to look for new bases of success. And that's a very hard thing to do because the second part of that is future oriented and therefore unpredictable. Right. Um, it involves a different set of questions, um, um, uh, somewhat disruptive questions and, and organizations are often loath to, um, to, 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 to tell. <laughs> right. Don't ask the question because it'll exactly. be, it'll be awkward if you actually ask me that question. If I can interrupt, are there any questions in particular that you find are powerful to help people future orient? Yes. So, so how can you now, fortunately, and we've, we've looked at this, um, we've looked at what we call the vitality, the future growth potential of corporations as a, as a function of their size and age. So the bad news is the bigger and the older your, your corporation is, the less likely it is to have a lot of future growth potential. Right. Um, and, um, but the good news is that the dispersion is enormous and that is not a law of nature. That's a tendency, not an inevitability. And so some of the uh, moves that a leader can make to, um, uh, to break that compromise, if you will, is um, one of them is um, being in the world. Um, so yeah. I think of, you can think of a, of a company like a sphere. The, the bigger the radius of the sphere, the lower the surface area is in proportion to the volume. In other words, the yeah. more inward facing that the corporation becomes unless it takes special efforts to stay externally oriented because if you're not seeing that which you need to adapt to you will not uh, you will not you will not adapt so external orientation yeah. and um another one is um uh observation I, I think about this as uh you know thinking like a novelist which is um you know it's a great it's, it's a great human invention the the, the average um, is, is, a, is a great <laughs> mathematical shorthand, right? On average, right. something is true. But if you de-average and you look at the particular data points, there are always anomalies. And some right. of those anomalies, um, a customer, you know, not buying the product or wanting something else yeah. or a salesman using a different uh, technique. 
Some of those right. anomalies are prescient. They actually are unreasonably successful. They're pointers towards the future. So thinking about the details is very important. And then another one is to avoid over-financialization. So uh, there is this uh, adage which is uh, attributed to, to, to Peter Drucker of what gets, um, what, get, what gets measured gets, gets done. Um, what gets measured get ma gets managed. There are different variants on it. That's right. Um, yeah. But I'd say it's unfortunate if we restrict ourselves to that which can be measured accurately because that is the path to financialization, which is uh, not an unadulteratedly good thing. If we restrict ourselves to, the th to measuring financial outcomes, we will never explore new ideas with unknowable financial outcomes. Um, so I think balancing exploitation with exploration and yeah. showing that that is everybody's responsibility. Um, so a simple way of putting it would be that a leader can either say your responsibility is to produce output from yesterday's model and to not waste a second on anything else. That's one type of cooperation. Yeah. Or what I call a mechanical cooperation, or right. he, um, they, they can communicate that um, everybody is responsible for not only running the business, but also renewing the business. And that's a very different proposition. And that, this goes back to Aristotle's two definitions of economics. He had one definition, which was crematistica, which was a, a maximization problem. It was essentially yeah. you know, profit making. And he had this other concept uh, called uh, oikonomia, um, which was loosely translated as the affairs of the household, which was more of a That's concept right. of balance, you know, the pursuit of economics for an ulterior purpose, the, the welfare of the family. And, and so that's that second concept of economics that we're talking about here, not the first one. Right. I love this. I love the etymology, which is, you know, care of the household. Mm -hmm. It immediately casts economics in a very different light when you understand that that's its root meaning. Martin, I love this idea that the awareness of the danger of over-financialization and how metrics can shape what the matter is. I can't remember the name of the term, but there's a, a way you set your metric and then the metric becomes a tail that wags the dog. Um, I guess my question is, what are the ways beyond the metrics that you measure success or at least you navigate towards the future? I'm wondering if you've seen examples, if you have language to help people imagine, what else can they look to as beacons of, you know, I'm on the right path? Um, yeah, there are a number of things that can be said about that. That's a very interesting question. And actually, it relates to a previous uh, uh, book uh, by John, which I know you, you, you like too, uh, Obliquity. So there, yeah. are, um, there are things that you can obtain in life which um, by pursuing them directly. And there are things that you can never attain by pursuing them directly. So you don't get happy by trying desperately to be happy. Right. You don't make lots of friends by trying desperately to have lots of friends. You know, it's an outcome of, of pursuing something else. And yeah. um, so similarly, um, we've actually measured this because with machine learning, you can measure, you can analyze anything nowadays. And we've looked at the, um, whether corporations that are very directly profit-seeking and maximizing as an end in itself are actually successful in doing so. And it turns out that uh, profit maximization is a little bit of an oblique goal. Um, right. Uh, that if you pursue it too directly, you 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 undermine the sustainability of being able to do so. So <laughs> the uh, the specific answer to your question kind is kind of mind blowing because you know that feels like it undermines one of the I guess basic tenets of capitalism, which is to pursue shareholder maximization. Yes. And actually, there's a way that pursuing that actually undermines the very goal itself. 
Right, because um, and, and, and for some very obvious reasons in a way. I mean, if you do that at the expense of the the super system of society in which your company is embedded, sooner or later you'll be regulated, yeah. sanctioned, boycotted. Um, so you have yeah. to think about the the synergy with the broadest, the symbiosis with the broader system, uh, and also, of course, um, there's this thing called investment. I mean, you don't you don't maximize cumulative profit over time by only extracting. You have to you know you have to invest yeah. in order to extract, which involves exploration. So actually, non not immediately profit maximizing behaviors may eventually result in, in 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 profit maximization. And then you know the other thing I'd say about your question is, um, I think metrics can be a good thing, but you need different metrics for different stages in the life cycle of an idea. So I mean, to give right. an extreme example. Um, if I ask, if you tell me I've got this wonderful idea for turning our business upside down, it's, it's quite embryonic, but I, it's, I'd like to discuss it with you. And I say, well, I'm only talking to you if you show me the 20-year net present value calculation. This idea will go absolutely nowhere. It's the wrong, <laughs> the wrong metric for the situation. A better metric for that situation is, is there a champion for the idea? Is there yeah. a narrative which is a plausible model of success for this idea. Yeah, I love that. Has the champion attracted followers? You know, these these are sort of more appropriate yeah. to very early stage um, ideas. And I love that those metrics in that early stage actually draw on some of the tenets of a good narrative. You know, do we have a hero? Do we have a mentor? Do you have a journey? Do you have a threshold to cross? Can you imagine what the monster is? You can you can almost say that this is a hero's journey to be walked here, perhaps as one indicator that there's something worth pursuing absolutely. here. Absolutely, it comes back to that Kahneman quote: nobody ever made a decision because of, because of a number; they need a story. But interestingly, um, some corporations, uh, you know, if there's an entrepreneur with an idea, yeah, the first thing they'll do is a net present value calculation. The second thing they'll do is they'll take the entrepreneur out of the equation and put it into some some other team. Right. Um, so one of the companies we write about in the book is a Japanese company called Recruit. There's a very successful serial business model innovator. And they do the exact opposite of that, which is um, the, uh, the criteria for starting a project um, for a new business model is that um, there's a champion and there's a follower. It's automatically funded if that's the case. And um, the second thing is that they, um, they deliberately cultivate entrepreneur heroes so they, uh, when I, I spent a week with this company studying them, and they, the first thing they told me was, the first person you meet must meet is Mr. Yamazaki because he's one of the most important people in the company. I thought they were going to introduce me to the company president or the head of HR. Yeah. In fact, he's one of their entrepreneur heroes. Yeah, I love that. And they have a, you know, a hall of fame of entrepreneur heroes, and they are the most important and celebrated uh, people in the company. And, the, uh, and the, uh, also, they invite people on stage to tell the story, the narrative of the yeah. success or the potential success. And the, and the entrepreneur, the champion of the idea, the hero, stays on the hero's journey. They don't, they, don't, they don't treat it like a disembodied idea that can be put into any part of the organization. They, they're not afraid of, the, of the, the personal connection between the hero and the hero's journey. Yeah, you know, I'm excited for your new book, The Imagination Machine. What surprised you most in the writing of it? What did you uncover that you may have been taken aback by? Well, it was a tremendous um, opportunity for me to read very widely on the topic because it's uh, one of the, the great attractions of the topic for me is it's, it's not only important in the present, important in business, but it's something that philosophers and artists have written about um, you know, over centuries. And so um, one of the most, I guess, 
uh, in retrospect, it seems obvious, but one of the most surprising conclusions I came across as we were writing the book was um, this idea that, um, you know, imagination is somehow an instantaneous magical ability applied, applied by gifted individuals in a way that couldn't possibly be managed. Um, right. And, and that struck me as odd because, of course, there is a grain of truth in it. I mean, humans are complex. Uh, um, you know, creation is, 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 is creating new things is an unpredictable business. Um, but it struck me as odd because business does not shy away from other unpredictable aspects of human affairs, like yeah. deeply understanding consumers or managing human resources. So why did they shy away from this one? And when we dug, we found that the the concept of imagination was very, very influenced um, by the romantic movement uh, who saw these mm. um, uh, 100 years or so ago, who saw these tragic geniuses who would right. be unworldly would think poetic thoughts from you know inspired by something yeah, wandering through the field of daffodils waiting for the muse to arrive exactly and 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 this is this this sort of notion that we all implicitly carry around with us is is part of the reason why we don't attempt to harness imagination so that was one very important thing and then it's interesting i, I guess the uh, we've already spoken about narrative the incredible importance of yeah. the story because people don't pay attention to facts they pay attention to stories and and in particular the uh we we went deep on um, on naming, um, you know, because the there's a magical moment when the new thing acquires a name, and it can acquire different types of name in different types of ways. And it turns out to be a real a really critical moment in the in the life of an idea when it acquires a name. And we 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 discovered that there are basically three three philosophies for naming new things. One of them is to functionally describe what it is because people would otherwise not know so for example the yeah. vacuum cleaner was initially called griffith's apparatus for the vacuum removal of dust or something like this <laughs> because looking at the thing you'd never guess what it actually did exactly. so that's that's one way that's one way of naming another way of naming it is, is quite the opposite which is to make it seem familiar and not intimidating right so the apple watch you know one of its 200 functions is is a watch, but it's not really a watch. But if we call it a watch, uh, people can relate to it. They can, right. they have a model of what they might do with it. Um, so that's another philosophy, which is um, communicate familiarity. And then the other one is um, what we call the uh, uh, FCUK t-shirt philosophy, which is uh, you, you draw attention, you gather attention to a name by deliberately naming it in an obscure or sensational, right. uh, sensational way. And sometimes... And, and we, we, we thought about the, um, how, how this was a really critical decision in the life of an idea to, to, to signal to others the, the main import of that idea, the main significance of the idea to them. So that was a very interesting chapter, I think. That's fascinating. And I mean, for people who don't know FC UK, it was a French Connection UK, a clothing shop in England. I can't remember, in the 80s, I guess, or maybe early 90s. And they came out with a T-shirt where they put FC UK, and obviously that's an anagram of a swear word. And it was a fashion sensation. I mean, everybody wore it because it was, you know, provocative, and also people understood that the pun was there. If you if you just said like this is clothing, I mean, none of us would have been excited. Exactly. If said, this is a a fibrous, uh, you know, plant material that's been woven using uh, <laughs> technology for the purposes of covering and insulating the human body, a purely functional name. Also, not that not, compelling. Not, not quite as compelling, right? Yeah. 
Man, a final question for you. It's it's a big question. It's a sweeping question. What needs to be said in this conversation between you and me that hasn't yet been said? Oh, I wasn't prepared for that question. Um, well, I guess we're, we're, we're celebrating curiosity. We're celebrating reading uh, in an age where um, that cognitive surplus can be crowded out with all sorts of other things. Um, so I would I'd very much endorse the spirit of the, of the podcast in saying that uh, uh, you know, the written word is still important. Uh, you know, reading aloud is still important. The tradition of books is still important. And also that we can, uh, in this age of over-specialization, we can speak across topics. You know, the, uh, the need for generalist thinking is also alive, alive and well. So it seems to me that implicitly that's, that's what this podcast is about. And I think it's a wonderful thing. Martin, in our conversation, talked about organizations and differentiates between those that are inward-looking and those that are more externally oriented. The first one, inward, stops being adaptive to its circumstances. It wants reality to bend around it. And that's a game that's rarely won. The organizations that orient outward, well, they still maintain their values, their essence, but... They also see and understand their market and their customers and how they're changing. They're the ones whose imagination is likely to be fueled, ignited, or, you know, to use a different metaphor, cross-pollinated and allowed to bloom. And you? Do you feel you're inward or outward-looking? I'm, well, I'm a little worried that I'm more inward-looking than I'd care to admit. I mean, actually hosting this podcast is one of the ways I try to look outwards, but still, how might you, how might I choose to shift our gaze? Look, if you want to learn more about Martin and his new book, The Imagination Machine, you can just go to the website, theimaginationmachine.org. And if you want to see Martin's work, you can go to the website, bcghendersoninstitute.com. And of course, all of this is in the show notes. But I'll spell it for you in case you're keen. BCG and then Henderson is H-E-N-D-E-R-S-O-N-I-N-S-T-I-T-U-T-E dot com. A great rhythm is all those T's. And thank you, of course, for listening to the podcast. I'm grateful that you listen all the way through. I'm grateful that you're a fan. I'm grateful if you mention the, the podcast or this episode or any other episode to a friend. You know, we love growing by word of mouth. I'm grateful if you've given us a review on your favorite podcast app. That is helpful for sure. And of course, if you want a little bit more, we do have this little membership site. It's totally free called The Duke Humphreys, named after my favorite library in Oxford. And it's where you'll find transcripts and you'll find unreleased episodes and you'll find some downloads that I've created for you as well. So if you're curious, go check that out. There's a, a nice group of people forming in The Duke Humphreys. You're awesome and you're doing great. <laughs>